Well, hello, welcome here, friends, into this online space or to our in-person watch party at Jericho Center. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And I'm so glad that you're participating in our community in this way. I want to speak to our students for a moment. I know most of you are back into a learning environment of some kind or another. So how's that going for you so far? It's interesting to me to observe how different people respond differently to challenges when the challenge level gets adjusted because different personalities respond differently to new challenges, don't they? Take, for example, uh, the different responses that my wife Meg and I both had when we were in late elementary middle school and we were told to memorize our multiplication tables. I can remember it clearly. My grade six teacher, Mrs. Stanley, told me that if we memorized our times tables, she would quiz us and she would give us prizes if we could reduce our time. And she would give us extra points for memorizing the hard ones. And so this brought out a competitive streak in me. And I went home and I tried to commit them to memory so I could get more prizes than the other kids. My wife's grade five teacher also wanted her to memorize her times tables and so told her, you need to do this. You will never graduate from high school without memorizing your multiplication tables. And Meg promised that day right there in her heart, I will not memorize these times tables and I will graduate from high school. An undergraduate and a graduate degree later, I'm still not sure that she knows four times seven or nine times seven off by heart, but she's an amazing human being whom I love very dearly and whose permission I did in fact ask to share this story with you. But the point of this is that different people respond differently when presented with the same challenge. This fall, we're in a teaching series here at Jericho entitled Say What? where we are exploring the hard or difficult sayings of Jesus. And we're learning that some of the things that Jesus said are hard because they're difficult for us to understand. But some of them are hard because of the demands that they make on our lives. And they're only too clear, but we may or may not be in a place where we're ready to listen and obey. And we see this all through the life of Jesus, that people respond very differently when they are presented with a challenge by Jesus. So, for example, last weekend, Pastor Wally explained that when Jesus said, hate your parents, Jesus was using hyperbole to compare and contrast the love that we're to have for God with other close relationships in our lives. The week before that, we looked at John chapter 6, where Jesus said, you must eat my flesh. And we learned Jesus wasn't speaking literally, rather he was speaking about the communion meal and an invitation for us to draw our nourishment and strength from him spiritually. And people responded very differently to that challenge. Today we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 5, which is sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is really the center point of Jesus' ethical teaching. This is where Jesus says radical and challenging things to those who would choose to follow him. Things like, you are blessed if you are poor, or you are blessed if you are in mourning, or those who are meek and humble will inherit the earth. 
You're blessed if you're persecuted. Jesus lays down radical expectations of what it means to follow him and participate in the upside down nature of the kingdom of heaven. And if this wasn't enough, he goes on to teach about keeping your anger under control in Matthew 5, verse 38. And then he talks about not taking revenge on those who wrong us. And as he rounds toward the end of what would have been given as a sermon, Jesus comes to what I think is one of the most radical and perhaps most challenging statements anywhere in the gospel accounts of his life. These five verses at the end of Matthew 5 are so radical, some ethicists and Christian traditions throughout history have simply given up and said, you know what? It's simply unattainable. There's no way women or men can do that sort of thing that Jesus calls us to do. And they may well be right. But we have to wrestle with the question, what if Jesus actually meant what he said? Let's look together at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be starting in verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that the law says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the good and the evil, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so let's just have our say what moment. Jesus, you, you want me to be perfect? I can't even get there on my best days. And with all that's going on in the world right now, I am not having my best days any day. So we would do well to pause and ponder what in the world might Jesus be saying to his listeners and also to you and I in this passage. Let's look at it verse by verse. Jesus starts off in verse 43 with an ancient command to love your neighbor, which was given in the Levitical law. So Jesus' original Jewish listeners would have been totally in agreement with this. But the problem was, and we see this in other parables that Jesus tells, like for example, the story of the Good Samaritan, or Jesus' own scandalous interactions with those considered outsiders, such as the woman at the well in John chapter 4, that the definition of neighbor can become hyper-narrow. Notice where the quote from Leviticus 19 verse 18 ends and where the additional commentary begins. So the text says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, end quote, and hate your enemy. So don't hear what the Bible is not saying. The Hebrew scriptures do not give a license to hate our enemies. And then Jesus adds in this high challenge expectation that those who follow him will bless those who curse you and you will do good to those who hate you. So this is incredibly hard teaching 
especially in the polarized world in which we live today, which is marked by fear and hatred of all types. I mean, think for a minute, friends, how divided our world is today along any number of lines, socioeconomics, politics, parenting styles, generational lines, racial lines, country of origin. There's fear and misunderstanding all over the place in our world today. Church planter and author Dan White Jr. was so struck by how deep this was running, not just in the culture, but in his own heart and in the church that he wrote a book entitled Love Over Fear. And he is seeking, like many others in the Anabaptist movement, a pathway that seeks to put down the mantle of othering and pick up the mantle of loving our enemies. I commend the book to you, and he's a good person to follow on social media, and his website, loveoverfearproject.com, is also worth a visit. In one of his recent tweets, he said this, quote, our daily news feed tells us who our enemies are and how we should loathe them. But our daily invitation from God's spirit is to love our enemies and to find creative ways to bless them. I don't know about you, but I find this to be a very real challenge. I mean, think for a minute, what would it look like if we actually took time to listen and genuinely learn from and then move to the place of prayer for others who are genuinely different than you and me? What would it look like to befriend those who are in different places with respect to their political persuasions, not with a vision to convert them to our way of thinking? Or what about those with differing sexual identities or just different driving habits or different habits like Pinot Grigio drinkers? Just kidding, Pastor Wally. But we become clear that it's not hard to love those who love us. People who look like us, people who act like us, people who vote like us, people who smell like us and eat food like us, and people who read the Bible like us. But Jesus suggests in Matthew 5, verses 46 and 47, there's really no reward for that kind of easy behavior and thinking. We might agree with Jesus that we should resist paying back evil for evil when harmed, but loving those people who are in the camp of enemies, praying for them, that's, that's taking it to a whole next level. And on top of that, we have to wrestle with the issue, can we really be commanded to love someone? That may seem to remove the place of volition or our personal choice from the equation. And that's something that we as autonomous North American individualists are very loath to do. I think part of our problem in that may well lie in the sentimental association that the word love has for us. See, we tend to associate it with feelings, but the scriptures say things uh, like 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, let us not merely say that we love each other, let us show the truth by our actions. Loving our enemies, in other words, shows up not in how we think about our enemies and not always even in how we feel about our enemies, but how we act 
toward those whom we consider enemies. How we love them with our time, with our talents, with our treasures. And this is an incredibly challenging posture, but it's one that God knows about because God is in the business of loving enemies so that they can become family members. Take, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and it reminds us that you and I were once far away from God. You were God's enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, but now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he's brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. See friends, by his work on the cross, Jesus broke down the walls of hostility between cultures, oppositional factions, gendered hierarchies, power inequalities, all of the barriers that would divide us. And God not only made it possible for us to live peacefully, but also for us to extend that ministry of reconciliation and peacemaking to others. And this is really the heart of the gospel. And because of that, it is the heart of the work to which you and I have been called. So it's really in this context that Jesus makes the statement about being perfect. Let's explore Matthew 5, 48 within that context where Jesus says, now you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven as perfect. Now this sounds like an imperative command. What? Be, be perfect? What if I can't be perfect? What, what if I've already messed up my life really badly? I'm kind of hooped before I even start on that journey. Well, as Pastor Wally pointed out to us last weekend, it can be helpful for us to look into the parallel account if it exists in another gospel. And we have that for the Sermon on the Mount. And so in Luke chapter six, we see that another disciple of Jesus recorded the words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the text there reads this way, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. So here again, we see the notion of love being not an abstract concept or an idea or a feeling. It's not a noun. Love is a verb. It is an action word. Be compassionate. And when we find the same saying of Jesus preserved in different forms by first, two first century gospel writers as we do here, Often the reason is that Jesus' Aramaic words, Aramaic was the language that Jesus spoke and would have preached in, they've been translated into Greek, which was the language that the original New Testament documents were written in, and they were translated in two slightly different ways. So one, we don't know the precise Aramaic words that Jesus used on this occasion, but they probably meant something like you must be perfect, that is all embracing, without any restriction, in your acts of mercy or kindness, because that is what God is like. New Testament uh, scholar Peter H. David notes that when the books of the law were read in the synagogue, 
from the original Hebrew, the reading was accompanied by an oral paraphrase called a targum. In Aramaic, that was the popular vernacular. And so there's a passage in the law in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 26 to 28, which prescribes kindness. And it prescribes kindness actually to animals. And in one of the Aramaic, Aramaic paraphrases, this passage ends with the words, as our father is merciful in heaven, so you must be merciful on the earth. Do you hear the echo of that? Here, what Jesus is lifting out of the Hebrew scriptures. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that you and I are invited into the very real place of acting like our Father in heaven, who is good and compassionate not only towards the just and the good people, but also radically and lavishly loves those who are currently not in that category, who are living as enemies of God or enemies of you and I. You might be listening to this and thinking, well, Brad, that all sounds fine and good, but you don't know my neighbor. You don't know the person who wronged me. They're insidious and they are unrepentant and whatever else you would add into that. And I wanna say, friend, I, I hear what you're saying. Recently, uh, I had a run-in with a neighbor over something. And I found myself just being immediately, the thoughts that were coming to my mind of saying, really, this, after all the good things I've done for you, this is how you're going to repay my kindness? And I thought to myself, I'm not gonna cut your lawn anymore. But this week, as I began to dig into this text more, I became convicted that my actions were driven by a sense of wanting to be right, wanting to feel superior, wanting not to be my compassion be taken advantage of. And, and friends, I recognize a lawn care issue or a small dispute with a neighbor is certainly a minor one. And I wanna acknowledge that many of you have been wronged in very significant ways. You have been taken advantage of. You've been taken to court, stripped unjustly of your rights, sued by business partners who called themselves Christians, bullied by classmates, betrayed by people who you thought were friends many of you in very significant ways. And in this moment, as you call to mind that action that has been perpetuated against you, you and I are being invited to respond in a different spirit. Where hatred has been sown, we are called to actions of love. And this is a difficult process. It starts when we come to faith and it continues until such a time as we see Jesus face to face. And theologians use fancy words to describe this and they use words like sanctification or perfection of our faith. And so we are in some very real sense called to perfection. We are called to be perfect or to become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect because God is making us into people who, in the language of Hebrews 10, verse 14, are forgiven 
and fulfilled or completed. We just won't be completed and completely free from sin on this side of eternity, but we are friends in the process of being made truly holy, not just forgiven for our failure to be holy. And so our practice for this week is the invitation to compassionate enemy love. I want you to pause for a moment and you may even need to just close your eyes. And I want you to think of a person who has wronged you or a person who just annoys you, with whom you disagree. I want you to think about what it might look like to love them well this week, to find a way to bless them. Maybe you'd mow their lawn for them, maybe take a meal to them or offer to provide childcare in some way for them, in some practical way. Could you show the love of Christ to them this week? Maybe in the quietness of this moment, you say, well, I can't get there, but I'm gonna work hard to get to the place where I could pray for them. And friend, you will not be able to do this on your own strength or in your own strength and power. That's why we need the grace of God. And, and that's one of the powerful things that comes, that when you and I have experienced the mercy that is offered to us at the cross, when we meet Jesus there at that place, we then come to know and understand what that feels like and the actions of love that Jesus has displayed toward us. And we can then offer that perfect compassion and perfect love that we have received to other people. Because friends, you and I, if you are a committed follower of Jesus, are called to a different ethic, the ethic modeled for us by Jesus, who loved us and who gave himself up for us us. So let's pray together as we respond in worship. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus and the perfect love that you have showed toward us, even while we were your enemies. I ask that you would gift us with strength, gift us with resources by your spirit to be able to display that love to others around us this week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.